Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. We will halve inflation, grow the economy, reduce debt. Nothing's changed. The circus moves on. Rinse and repeat. We have an opportunity to become Europe's Silicon Valley. We can perhaps be a broker of some sort with Ukraine. We expect inflation to come off quite rapidly in the rest of this year. Obviously, we want to see that happen. What we now need is a period of stable, quiet, serious government. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Caroline Hepke. Coming up on today's programme, no UK recession, at least not yet. Economic growth beats expectations for the month of June and also for the second quarter overall. On the other hand, does that actually mean more interest rate rises from the Bank of England, perhaps even then another downturn further down the road? Look, we're going to explore the economics, what it means for politics. Bloomberg Economics Chief European Economist Jamie Rush is going to be with us in just a few minutes. Now, Caroline and Lizzie, do you fancy a job with flexible hours? How about the option to work from home most or all of the week? And not keen on management stress or overtime. Is it sounding good? Yeah. Uh, yes, please. <laughs> uh, would you be willing to earn less for all of that? Well, that is the compromise that Gen Z workers are apparently making, according to some data from the job site Adzuna. It finds that people born between 1996 and 2012 are not only depressingly young, but they're increasingly <laughs> searching for less stressful jobs that pay less than 35 grand. It's a trend that some people on the internet are calling lazy girl jobs. Ewan, can I have one of your small rants? Oh, yes. Look, no offence to our younger listeners, but am I the only one here thinking, that's great, but don't complain to me about how hard it is to get on the property ladder. Come back in a few years when you realise how expensive childcare is and good luck to you when you realise your pension pots are pittance. You've got to get your grind on (laughs) while you can, but hey, I'm a millennial. To give us the other side of the argument, though, we have brought in an actual member of Gen Z. She's with us in the studio. It's our reporter on the story, Olivia Fletcher. Olivia, we're fascinated by this trend. What's drawn you to the story? Lizzie, first of all, I'm going to have to cancel you for that. (laughs) Um, As a Gen Zer myself, just about 99, I still count. Like, I do use TikTok quite a lot. And recently, I've seen a lot of these so-called lazy girl jobs TikToks pop up all over my feed. So essentially, you know, people in their early 20s are being like, I'm just going to work in a cafe and do nice latte art. And then I don't have to think about work when I leave. Or I'm going to get a simple nine to five where, Mm -hmm. you know, I can clock out at five and I don't have to think work, you know, until tomorrow. I wanted to see if there was actual data to back this up in the yes. real world and not just on TikTok. And it turns out there is actually some data to back it up. You know, the data that Azuna provided me it does show an uptick in interest in the first half of the year for those typically junior jobs, you know, office admin roles um, that pay at least 35k, require no overtime, yeah, are flexible and don't have too much responsibility. Look, uh, I'm not a millennial and I'm not a Gen Zer either, uh, but isn't this just a bit of strategic thinking? I mean, mm. I, I get it, right? If you can't afford a house 
and you, you and wages have stagnated in the UK for a decade or more, something around that. And smartphones make you accessible all the time for work. Yes, I get it. Isn't that just kind of strategic thinking? It's just that it's sort of out in the open. Yeah, I mean, you could argue that, but also at the same time, Gen Z in the UK does face really unique problems that previous generations haven't faced. Um, you know, soaring housing costs, high student debt. I could go on. Um, while the data is kind of limited in scope, it does seem to suggest that this slots into the wider anti-work movement that mm. is taking place in the UK, but also we've seen the great resignation in the US. You know, post-pandemic things do seem to be shifting and the data fits that. Um, corporate employers are really going to have to start thinking about this. They're going to have to start reckoning with this. UK workers have had the most bargaining power essentially since the 1970s because the jobs market is so tight and bosses are desperately trying to retain staff so things yeah. might have to change a little bit yeah and I think that's the bit where I'd pull this story apart right I think yeah. it's great that it's a sort of TikTok uh you know theme meme whatever and you know and the kind of lazy girl moniker again it's a bit it sounds a bit like one of these taglines like quiet yeah. quitting or something like that but the data as you say when when i um was reading about it, it's it's the first six months of the year versus the last six months of last year so it's not as if it's a massive trend in mm. some senses and yet it got all of us talking why because i think it really does strike a nerve in terms of post-pandemic the availability of of workers you know ambition i mean is it fair to talk about it being a kind of trend of people being lazy or is it just like people defining no. a bit more clearly work versus their yeah. own home time well i do wonder if this is a pandemic effect because that that weird period in our lives changed so many things for, for for most people didn't it and i wonder if a bit like older workers who've decided they don't want to be in labor force anymore we talked about that loads yes Maybe some younger workers quite like working at home as well and quite like you know, less pressure from working at home. So maybe it's just a reaction to it's a, it's a post-pandemic thing. And I think an interesting thing would be to watch actually is as companies start to withdraw the right to work from home, which I think we are seeing at some oh, big companies now, now if yes. that will affect recruitment and retentions. I think that's a wider question. Yeah, and also, can I throw in the more serious point, which is inequality, right? Uh, skills, mm. the skills gap that the UK has. I think that surely must be a part of this because not everybody gets to pick and choose the work that they do. And there's this big also inactivity issue for 18 yeah. to 24 year olds, 1.66 million of them. You know, is that really choice? I think that's quite tricky. Spare a thought, reach for your violin. <laughs> For the broadcasters who must come to the office every single day. <laughs> we love it, though. Really great to have you with us. Olivia Fletcher, the reporter on that story. Great reporting. Well, a bit of good news on the UK economy this morning. Our chief uh, Europe economist, Jamie Rush, is here. Jamie, before we get into the data, what's your take on this on this Gen Z employment trend well, we've been I discussing? Just, I was just daydreaming about my first job, which was um, <laughs> making lattes in Starbucks in was the, it really? around the time when the Gen Z, the first of the Gen Z people being born, I think. No, it's related <laughs> to that. Do you miss uh, it? Yeah, it was a great job. I was just thinking probably one of the best jobs I've ever had. I mean, it, there were no flat whites. It, life was easy. Um, I used to love working in my student bar. It was, yeah. it was a great job. Yes, well, calcium days of youth. Uh, GDP, you say? <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, the, the, so the economy is growing in the UK a little bit faster than than was anticipated, and we should actually pay attention to what's going on with with GDP, because 
we're at this point now where the balance of risks for central banks is shifting. So they're very, very, very worried about inflation. Now, as headline inflation's down, core inflation's heading in the right direction, they're starting to think about what the consequences of their past policies have been. So they're thinking about what that might do to growth, looking for, risk, uh, for risks that are starting to crystallise. So we should be looking at GDP, and so far we don't see anything too catastrophic. So I think that really just strengthens the case uh, for the Bank of England to keep hiking uh, over the next couple of meetings. So that's the view from central banks. What about the view from politicians? Rishi Sunak needs an economic revival. He's promised us growth this year as one of his top five priorities. Jamie, what's your outlook for how the economy is going to fare by November 2024 when we're expecting that election? Well, I mean, the, the, the economy's held up better than most people would have thought. I mean, certainly the Bank of England this time last year, or last November, was forecasting a rather deep recession, and we haven't had it. So, I mean, the, the, the energy support's been pretty solid, uh, and the impact of rates doesn't seem to be that big yet. But that's the question, is when is this going to start to bind? And um, I, I, I think that it would be, I think it would be a bit optimistic to think that we're going to get off with all this scot-free. I think the, the increase in interest rates we've seen is big, mm. it's going to feed through to the economy, and we are going to see things slow down quite quickly. Yeah, absolutely. Looking, though, um, the other sort of interesting thing, I think, is that even though we've managed to avoid a recession in the UK, when we look at a lot of sectors, not just in the UK, but across Europe, there are sort of recessionary-like um, uh, phenomena happening sector by sector, even if you don't have an overall recession. So, you know, things do feel very difficult. I mean, you're talking about this being good news. It's two tenths of 1% growth. It's very, very soft, isn't it? It's sort of bumping along the bottom. So, I mean, can we sort of, yeah, I think it's it's still a very, very difficult moment for the economy, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's rubbish. I mean, the economy hasn't really expanded for the past year uh, in the UK. It's doing worse than the US by a massive margin. Yeah. Europe's not doing great either. And, I, and the sectoral story that you you point to is actually an important one because which the economy, which which of the sectors are doing badly is the ones that are typically go first when you have a recession it's mm. construction manufacturing interest rate sensitive sectors and those are followed by services and then that's when you get everything starting to come come fall away so uh, the the thing is it's really hard to disentangle whether that's whether the, these sectors are performing badly because of interest rates or because of the stuff that's happened with energy and everything else so um there's there's you can read it both ways, and uh, but the, there's clearly a risk that everything just goes south very fast. What's your expectation for interest rates going forward? Over the last couple of weeks on the retail front, we've seen some, some of the big banks cutting their mortgage rates, which has been good news for anybody re refinancing. But what, what does this mean for the, for the slightly longer-term picture? Well, I think they're right to cut them because so when you think about what the price of a mortgage is, two-year, five-year fixed, it's, it's expectations of interest rates over that period. And those have fallen back a lot. So uh, people are not expecting the Bank of England to get as uh, to lift rates as far as previously thought, uh, and and therefore that's that's priced out quite a lot of action in the in the two and the five year swap rates, which is what drives mortgage rates. So it, it's their right to to adjust their pricing. Okay, can I go back to some of the fundamentals? Something that we haven't um, talked about that much, but strikes. Strikes were having, you know, a reasonable impact actually on the UK economy over the course of this year. We do have junior um, doctors in some parts of the country still still striking, um, and it is still something that government must think about. You know, not everybody has accepted uh, the pay deals. How how painful are the pain deals for 
government how much of an effect are, are strikes having on the UK economy now? Well, I should disclose my wife's on strike today. She's a she's a doctor. Um, but the so what's the I mean, the, the reason people are striking is that the 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 wage gains that have happened in the private in the public sector over the past ten years have been extremely weak, and that has now collided with inflation and it's become mm. very acute. So that's the reason. It's not that they they want full compensation for the current inflation rate; it's that they want something to compensate for all that 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 weakness in the previous years relative to the private sector. So I think that's why people are doing it. Um, whether they're going to have any success, I, I, I doubt that at this stage. Um, but the, 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 certainly the costs are getting more binding, certainly in the health sector. I thought it was interesting that you pointed out, Jamie, that as we get to this pivot point for central banks, the GDP figures become more important. But of course, we've still got jobs and inflation numbers to come this month. What are you expecting from them, the typically seen as more important data? Yeah, so headline inflation is going to drop in the UK. That's baked in. It's because energy prices aren't going up in the same way this year as they did last year. Uh, so we're going to see inflation drop to 6.8% probably, and that's about a percentage point drop. So that, that's that's going to be helpful. Um, on the core side, things are going to be a bit more persistent. Uh, but I think probably by the end of the year, Sunak's slightly more likely than not to make his target of halving inflation over the course of the year. Mm, but not definitely. Uh, not definitely, but probably, probably, just mm. about. I wonder what your take is on what NISA had out this week. Um, so this is the National Institute for Economic and Social Research. We did an interview on the Bloomberg um, UK Politics podcast just earlier this week with Jadjit Chadha. He was a very interesting speaker. He was also very pessimistic and the institution is very pessimistic about the UK outlook you know talking about basically five years of stagnation that is going to take a generation to overcome all of the issues that the UK has uh, you know structural investment in skills investment in building things um, and that he was although he didn't talk kind of in political terms he talked about having to face reality britain having to face reality not deny the situation that we were in it was very strong i thought i i wonder what you make of that take because it does seem to be such a prevalent view frankly on the uk economy that we're at a kind of moment of uh, the need for revolutionary thinking when it comes to the economy of the uk yeah jagjit's probably the only person who's gloomier about it all than i am but i think the I mean, it, it, he's right, of course. I mean, the, when you look at the big picture for the UK economy, we are underperforming peers. Productivity growth is very slow. Investment is very weak. And these, these things would need to be fixed if we're to, to live up to our potential. Uh, and the longer this goes on, the, the worse the fiscal situation is and the, and the more this could potentially be compounded. So, I mean, I mean just thinking about it, if you look at what, how long it takes for government debt to refinance, for example, the worst of the fiscal situation is nowhere near, uh, uh, it's nowhere close. I mean, that, that's coming in 10 years, 15 years' time when, mm. the, when it's all fold, rolled over. So there's a huge crunch coming for the UK and we, we're all going to live with it. Jadjit mentioned the 2019 election manifesto promise to level up Britain. Realistically, in the amount of time that will have passed when we get an election, could the government have fixed the deep-rooted problems of the UK economy, the productivity issues, the regional inequality? No, I don't think there's any realistic possibility that was going to happen. But I, I think you could try to make some progress. I mean, these things come from skills, equality of opportunity across the country. And those things are generational challenges. They're not something that can be done in an election cycle. So 
uh, that there needs to be progress in that direction. You're never going to see the, out, the outcome of that until later. Jamie, thanks so much for joining us. That's Jamie Rush, our chief uh, Europe economist. And we'll get those uh, labour market figures, the unemployment numbers uh, coming next week. Be interesting mm. to see what they show. Yeah, I think it's very interesting. I mean, it, it is a bit gloomy. And yet there is, I think, in what Jamie was saying and also what Jagjit Chatter was telling us earlier this week, there is a glimmer of hope, i.e., you know, we if if minds can be focused on changing the economic outlook for the UK, there are opportunities. But Chad was telling me earlier this week that, you know, the UK may have stagnated for too long. That was his real worry. I thought that was kind of a big thing to take away. Oh, pushed over a cliff. Yeah. Well, I want to bring us a brighter bit of news now. Then. We were talking <laughs> about lazy girl jobs. So I wanted to remind you all that there are some active women, the ones playing the World Cup. England's <laughs> reached the four quarterfinals of the tournament. And that's not the only good news from the number of viewers to the money involved the attention the women's cup has got this year sets it apart yeah absolutely leanne gerens and i have been following uh, each of the matches each of the games we're totally into the footy so uh, we brought in sports analyst minal moda to talk to us about it from ampere analysis and we asked her if it really has been a huge success so far the fifa women's world cup I think it's been better than what FIFA were hoping for. There were a few um, concerns among the European broadcasters before the World Cup started that because of the time zone issues, actually they might not get as many viewers. But for England's um, round of 16 game the other day, there were nearly a million concurrent viewers on the BBC website, which means that there are lots of people, even though the matches are on during work time, engaging with it. And then on the ground in Australia, it's been absolutely amazing. Um, our research showed last year that actually Australia was one of the markets where there wasn't as high of interest in the Women's World Cup, but this seems to have really boosted it and galvanized the market. So I'm sure FIFA will be hoping that it will have a similar effect as the Euros had in Europe last year, and it will basically push the women's game forward globally rather than just in some of the developed markets. What's interesting is the broadcasters only came to the table and showed the matches at the last possible moment. The BBC and ITV here in the UK announced a deal on the 14th of June for an event starting on the 20th of July. Do you think that that is now progressing to a different place and women's football is going to be seen differently by these massive broadcasters across the world? Yeah, I think so. I think there's like real value being shown in women's football. There's this real um, sense that if you bring football to people, people will watch it. And the quality of women's football as it becomes more and more professional is getting better and better. It's also a very different proposition to men's football in that it's much more family friendly. There's less of that corruption and taint around it. So actually for broadcasters if they want to get advertising spend around something that's positive and has social impact they should really be looking to invest in, in women's sport i think a slight defense of the broadcasters is that some of them are maybe digging their heels because of this time zone issue but it's it seems slightly unfair because they have definitely broadcast men's world cup matches in japan etc and they, we haven't had similar sorts of issues so i'm really hoping that the, this World Cup and the Euros last year and the popularity and the viewership it's bringing will mean that broadcasters and brands as a whole are going to start putting more money behind women's football. 
So listen, we're talking about men's football there and we know that that is just massive around the world. And as you're saying, women's football, more of a family game. It's really progressing. But is there a danger that the competition will be overshadowed this weekend by the beginning of the men's football season in England and elsewhere? We've been so uh, speaking so much about transfer deals that are happening. So do you think, you know, we might forget about the Women's World Cup? I don't think so. You know, like there's obviously an overlap tomorrow between England's quarterfinal and then the Arsenal and Nottingham Forest match that's on. But I just think the women's game is just going to have so much more traction. And the fact that it's on ITV and it's on free to air rather than the Arsenal game, which is on BT slash TNT Sports, I think is obviously going to have a really big impact as well. Like I'm an Arsenal fan, but I'm definitely going to be watching the England match. But it does go to show that there is a conversation that needs to be had between the Premier League and the FA to make sure these types of scheduling conflicts don't happen. Because otherwise, it feels like there's a perception that the Premier League is just more important. And, um, you know, this would never have happened around men's football where such a big quarterfinal would have clashed with another match like this. And so I do think that there is work that needs to be done between the regulatory bodies just to make sure that the women's game is getting as much spotlight and focus as possible. Okay, but come on. Um, In terms of the money, which talks the loudest, uh, there's no equality there. Um, The prize fund for the 32 Women's World Cup teams, £86 million. £344 million was what the men's teams got in Qatar last year. More seriously, what do you make of Gianni Infantino, for example, who's obviously a a key player? You're talking about the ambition of pay parity by 2026-2027. how much focus is there really on, on getting either the national associations to really focus on, on equity, parity, equality, whatever, between the two, the two um, types of sport? I think it's a really difficult one because especially in the UK, you've got the Premier League, which is the biggest global league in the world. And the amount of money the Premier League brings in is unbelievable. Whereas because arguably women's football is still in its infancy, it's going to take a really long time before we're going to get to a place where they're bringing in similar sorts of media rights deals and the TV the TV broadcast money. There's also a fan element here. So we run consumer research at Ampere and we found that actually the unique audience for women's sport is tiny in a lot of markets, sorry, for women's football. So it's still really being driven by fans of men's football, fans of like men's and mixed sports in general. So what really needs to happen over the next five, 10 years is for women's football to establish itself as it's a sport in its own right and to have its own unique fan base. And once we get those audiences and once that fan base is built, then we can start talking about needing to create media rights deals that are at parity. From a pay perspective, yeah, I mean, it's obviously a bit of a no-brainer. Like you want, like if the women are playing exactly the same number of matches, exactly the same amount of time, you want that pay parity to be there. But the likes of FIFA and the FA will argue that if the women's football isn't bringing in as much money, then they shouldn't be being paid the same because there is that gap between the two. So right now it's about keeping women's football on free to air building those audiences and then making sure that we can get to a stage where the revenues are becoming similar with men's football. It's going to be a long journey. This isn't going to be something that's going to happen overnight. 
I guess the long journey is also getting the grassroots players involved. And I think this is why the Women's World Cup and the Euros were so good for English football, especially at that level. But just one quick question. I don't feel like we can let you go without speaking about Lauren James. So she's been so instrumental in this World Cup so far. She got a red card out for the next two games. Do you think this is going to affect our chances of getting all the way to the final? I mean, she, like you said, she has been so instrumental in these matches. And actually, we saw against Nigeria that this isn't a given. I think there's been a bit of a, a, a feeling coming into the Women's World Cup that, oh, there are these really um, established leagues and um, countries who will just kind of slide all the way through. But actually, it's been such a competitive tournament and we cannot underestimate Colombia tomorrow they have come through, they have been absolutely amazing in this tournament and I think the fact that she isn't there is going to make our job harder I do I just can't bet against England so like I do think we will get to the final and I'm hoping she'll be there and she'll take us all the way especially given that the USA and Germany are now out like this is such an amazing opportunity but it, we just have to take it one game at a time. And if we can get through Colombia tomorrow, I think like there is no reason why we can't go on to win this. So what's the score going to be tomorrow? England, <laughs> come on, tell us. You're predictions. Kidding. We need predictions. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say 2-1 in extra time. That was Minal Moda, who is the consumer lead analyst at Ampere, speaking to Leanne Gerrans and I. She was so interesting, wasn't she, about the Women's uh, World Cup. Look, my personal view is, you know, suddenly when you put it on telly, free to air, and you put it into the stadiums, people come. And the growth in women's football has been incredible. Yeah, it's been really quite extraordinary, hasn't it, over the last uh, few years. Fascinating conversation. Well, tomorrow's game against Colombia, 11.30am, <laughs> not quite as painfully early as some of those matches from Australia. Well, look, we've talked talked about lazy girl jobs we've talked about women's football it'd be remiss of me not to mention the interview with the shadow chancellor rachel reeves talking about her goal to be the first female chancellor in britain and to bring more gender diversity to economic decision making it got me thinking about the bank of england's monetary policy committee you've only got three out of the nine members who are women and they tend to be at the extremes of the spectrum but it is good to see sarah breeden replacing john cunliffe the deputy bank of england governor because he she's going to be an internal member be interesting to see how she votes yeah absolutely i wonder what uh, rachel reeves would do in office if uh, if that does happen of course and what other uh, female focused policies she might think about perhaps that's something we'll pick up on next week that's it from us for today if you like the program don't forget to subscribe give it five stars so that other people can find it on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you listen this episode was produced by james walcock and our audio engineers were marifa hussein and max green i'm ewan potts i'm lizzie burden and i'm caroline hepker we'll be back with more next week this is bloomberg Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions. July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.